I'm thankful for our leadership team, Scott and Aaron and Matt. It was wonderful last week to be able to go away and celebrate 15 years of marriage to my lovely wife, Carolyn. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah, she's put up with me for that long. She's a saint. Um, one of the things we got to do, we went down to the valley, and in Scottsdale, Carolyn found a deal where you could actually go ice skating on top of the W Hotel. So 10 o'clock last Thursday night, we're up there ice skating. It's sort of a hybrid rink on, their, on top of their pool, and what we quickly discovered is people in southern Arizona do not have a clue how to ice skate. <laughs> There were about 11 couples, and we watched the other 10 do this number the whole time. And I said, Carolyn, watch this. I, I just got to, and I went out there. I was just zipping around. I did like two or three laps, and I, I couldn't help but wonder, what are these people thinking when they look at me? Are they thinking that's pretty cool? Like, are they impressed? Is, this is fun. Like, you know, I felt like a professional skater. That's because we grew up in Ohio. I'm sure people in Phoenix swim better than I do or sweat better than I do, but... Ice skating, you know, I, I want to know what these people think about me ice skating. Are they impressed? And, and as I thought about thinking about what do people think of us, I thought as a church, do we ever wonder how does the world, what, what does the world think of us when they look at the church, our church and the church worldwide? Are they impressed? Or is it another reaction? What does the world think? And we got a little bit of a glimpse of what our nation's leadership and a large part of our country thinks about the church this week. I don't know if you guys heard what happened with Louis Giglio. Man of God that loves Jesus, loves the gospel, is a preacher of grace and salvation in Jesus. If you're not familiar with him, I'd encourage you to check out his DVDs, How Great Is Our God, and Many others, he, he just does a great way of sharing Jesus' love with the world. Well, president had asked him to lead the prayer at his inauguration coming up soon, the, the service where the president puts his hand on the Bible. Uh, but shortly after Louis Giglio was asked to do that, someone brought to light a sermon from 15 or 20 years ago that Louis Giglio preached where he said, as the Bible teaches and we believe is true, homosexuality, among other things, is sin. And the uproar about that became so large in our country that he felt pressure, Louis Giglio felt pressure to withdraw from being the one who would say that prayer. And, and I commend Louis Giglio. He said, I feel like if I were to go ahead and lead this prayer, the focus would, would be the wrong place. But I was discouraged when I heard our nation's leaders say, we want to choose someone who better reflects our nation's diversity to lead this prayer. That, that tells us something of how large parts of our world view the church, especially the church that believes the Bible as its standard. Some of that just comes with the territory of being the church. Okay, Jesus told his disciples, the world will hate you because it hated me first. Some of that just comes with holding on to the truth and being his ambassadors in this world. And, and there's nothing we can or do can or should do about that other than be faithful. But I would throw forward that some of the perceptions that are negative toward the church are deserved. Uh, some of the perceptions that are negative of the church are because of internal business that we as God's people need to do. We, we need to humbly go before God and say, God, where have we veered away from, from your standard in the, in the Bible? And where do we need to change? 
And my good friend, uh, John Dickerson, who is pastor at the Cornerstone Church in Prescott, I was just at his book launch at the Heights Church today. He's written a book about this that I would encourage you to read. John is a great friend. He's written a book called The Great Evangelical Recession, Six Factors That Will Crash the American Church and How to Prepare. And you hear the title and it kind of makes you cringe a little bit. The whole first half of the book is kind of like the Old Testament prophets. I mean, it's brutal. Like, here's where where we're falling short. Here's where we need to get back to the standard of the early church. Here's where we need to let God do his work. But the second half of this book is filled with hope as he dives into God's word and says, how do we get back to God's model for church? How do we get back to being the church that God called us to do? Six solutions for recovery. So I'd encourage you to get a copy of that. But I think it's good to think about how does the world see the church? I think as we're in the book of Acts in our series, Go the Motion of Mission, it's interesting to see how the world then saw the early church. And it's instructive for us. And as we look at how the world viewed the early church, there's three things that I want to talk about tonight that made that early church stand out. Made them stand out in every way they should for the Lord. They weren't perfect, but they did stand out. And when we ask that question, how did the world see the early church? It assumes something. It assumes that the early church was not tucked away, hiding, hunkering down in their own building. That, that wasn't what characterized the early church, not hiding from the world, not hunkering down, and it's not what should characterize us. That, that's the first point. The first point is they went public with their faith. They were not one person on Saturday evening and then a chameleon in the world that just sort of blended in with the culture. They went public with their faith. They took it into the public arena. And the way we know that, we're in the book of Acts chapter 5 verse 12. It says the apostles, the early leaders of the church, performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. God continued to confirm the truth of his word through these miracles And all the believers, check this out, used to meet together in Solomon's Colonnade. You guys know where Solomon's Colonnade was? It it was part of the temple in Jerusalem. It was at the heart of the city, and the temple was the heart of Jewish life. And here you have early church meeting right in the middle of everything. Now, granted, some of it was just because of logistics. You, we read earlier passages where 2,000 were added to the church, 3,000 were added to the church. So if they ever all want to get together, there's no way they had a building of their own to do it. No better place than the temple. But I believe it was also part of God's plan for his early believers to be right in the heart of the culture. Not tucked away, not hidden, but meeting in the temple where all the Jews would come. And you can imagine the things that they did there. They, they taught each other about Jesus. They would pray together. They did these miracles. They spoke about Jesus right in the center of the city. What did the people think about what they saw? What did they think when they went down to the temple and they saw this group? Well, check out Acts 5, 13 and 14. At first, it seems like there's some contradictions in this verse. We'll, we'll deal with them. They're not really contradictions, but it's interesting. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. 
Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So they say, okay, all right, Luke, which one is it? No one else dared join them or many were added to their number. And here's what's going on. There's two groups of people here. The first group says no one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. There's a group of people that looked at those early believers and it says they they regarded them highly. You say, why is that? We know from this passage that their leaders were healing many sick people. Anytime you've got a group that is pouring out God's blessings that way, it's going to bring favor, right? But we also know from history that this early church did a heck of a job of taking care of widows and orphans in that city of Jerusalem. Much better than many influenced by that Roman culture at that time would do. Kids were looked at sort of as garbage almost in some ways, just, uh, just inconveniences. And a lot of times kids would end up as orphans. Well, the early church was known for taking these kids in and taking care of them and taking care of widows. So the city looks at them and says, wow, I like some of what these people are doing. But those who wouldn't believe in Jesus dared join them. There's a couple reasons for this too. Do you guys remember our last passage in Acts, what happened to a couple named Ananias and Sapphira? They lied about how much they were given to the church and God struck them both dead. That does not make good PR, okay? You think about the stuff we use to promote churches today, like, like we have the best coffee in town and we have theater seating and we have the best musicians. You, you never see on there, you lie, you die, you know? This is not natural good PR. They, they, they looked and said, wow. There's a holy God that's tied with that church. That, that's kind of scary. But they highly regarded him. That's one group. The other group says, nevertheless, I love that word because despite that fear, God's spirit was doing his work. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Despite the fear of many, God was drawn others in. And you see this stark line between those who were on the outside and those who were in. You're either all out or you're either all in because it would cost you everything to join this this group. It goes on in verse 15. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. These healings were were happening on such a frequent basis that even people outside of Jerusalem were bringing their sick in. And people began to believe, and we don't know if it's true or not, that even if Peter walked by, if his shadow fell on someone, they would be healed. So what you see is God's blessings pouring through these people to the community, right? And God wants that today. Sometimes it's in miraculous ways. I believe God's still in the business of doing miracles. Often he wants to pour his blessings through us in simpler, more tangible ways. Our, our money, our time, our love. But the point here is God was using his church to pour blessing right into the heart of that city. They went public with their faith. In other words, they took it to the streets and And I think you and I need to wrestle with that. Are we as a church, are we as God's people doing that today? Are we going public with our faith or do we have this artificial divide between what happens on Saturday night and what happens as we're out there in our workplaces and in our city? I thought, what are some ways that we see people taking it to the streets today? 
taking their faith public. I'm going to tell you about three that I know of. People didn't know I was going to share this tonight. They didn't pay me to share this. This is just cool stuff that I see God doing. One, Scott Madsen and Aaron Rosberg, two of our missional community leaders, two of our elders, have been talking to the Prescott High School. Their hope is this year to launch a lunch group across the street from the school where someone will teach a worldviews class with the heart of it being that Christianity is the truth. And we've been talking with the vice principal about this class. The Mormons already do it, so he says it's going to be hard for them to say no to another group. Imagine that. Kids coming over across the street for a class they may even be able to get credit for, getting some good food, and hearing the truth about the gospel on their lunch break. That's taking to the streets. And that goes deeper than the legislative band-aids we're trying to put on why we have shootings in schools, right? We need to get the truth of God's word into hearts. Outside legislation will never be a fix for the, the sin problem that's going on. That's one way. Another way I wanted to share about Jim Hobrick, another missional community leader this week. Jim, how long have you been working for the Daily Courier and the other papers here? Uh, six years. Six years he's been working for those papers as the IT guy. And that whole time I know you and Lori have been loving on those co-workers. You've been uh, looking for opportunities to share Jesus, to pray with them. And this week... Uh, one, of their, one of their own in the, the work family there among those newspapers, a 40-year-old woman, passed away. You know who they called to do the funeral? Jim Hobrick. So Friday, yet, uh, yesterday actually, and I, I, I haven't even heard how it went. I can't wait to hear. There were two or 300 people from that paper all the way up to the owner of that paper sitting in a room. And Jim Hobrick was able to share the gospel with his whole work staff. That's taking faith to the streets. I think about Jerry and Deborah Finkston. They have a big heart for our military and veterans' families. And, and she stepped out over the past year along with Jerry and, and taken initiative to start things up at Embry-Riddle. And, and as a result of what she's done and networking with some people in Phoenix, this Monday they started a Bible study with 11 veterans in Prescott some of whom need the Lord for the first time, all of whom need the Lord's healing for what they experienced. Vietnam veterans, Afghanistan veterans, that's taken faith to the streets. And one last one, Dave and Yvonne, it's been good to see you guys here a few times. They are starting, you tell me if I get this name right, Vapai Territorial Gospel Rescue Mission for Homeless People. They... They, they, they moved up here from Tucson. You did your exploratory visit, what, about three months ago? Four months? October. October. They said, hey, is there a need for more beds? Is there a need for a gospel shelter? And they've moved up here from Tucson within, since October to pursue God's vision. Their hope is, in what they did in Tucson, they, they had a gospel rescue mission that was not funded by the state at all. It was funded by... Uh, as a 501c3 so that they're able to keep the gospel at the core of what they do with the homeless men. As they, as they help them learn how to work, as they help them get back on their feet, they can take the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is taking faith to the streets. I believe it is still happening today and that encourages me. Now some of you are saying, hey, well, what does that look like in my own life? Well, one, it may mean joining with one of our missional communities and saying, I want to team up with some people because you don't want to go alone. And that's what all these 11 missional communities are about. 
But another way, even on your own, have you ever considered maybe having your quiet time, your time with God and his word every day at a coffee shop instead of tucked away in your room? Where maybe you sit down with your Bible and you read there for 10 or 15 minutes and after you're done, you close it and you look at the person next to you and say, how you doing this morning? I can't tell you how many times I've had my Bible in a coffee shop and when you ask that question, what's their natural next question? What you reading? What you reading about? I had it happen three weeks ago at Method Coffee. I was preparing a sermon. guy asked me what I was reading. It was about light and darkness. And within 15 minutes, he and I were having a conversation about guilt, grace, and the cross of Jesus Christ. And what was cool was it wasn't just me and him. It was me and him and the five people in that tiny little Method Coffee shop that could overhear us talking about the grace of Jesus. So take your quiet time public sometimes. I want to ask you as a result of that first point. They, they went public with their faith. Where's your temple? Where is the public place that God is calling you to take your faith from here and, and go out and take it to the streets? Second point, they spoke the words of life. And what I mean by that is they spoke boldly the good news about Jesus Christ. That he came and died for people's sins and rose again to set them free. When it comes to that message, they were like teenagers and pizza. You're, when I was a teenager, my mom could not hide pizza from me and my brother. Because once we knew it was there, we were on it until it was gone. That was them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They could not get enough of speaking the words of life. Verse 17. The high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Now you remember in chapter 4, they, they called the apostles in, Peter and John anyway, and said, stop talking in the name of Jesus. This is the first time they actually did anything to punish them. They, they put the apostles, which means it was probably all or a good number of them in the public jail. And we don't have to guess why. The religious leaders in Jerusalem were what? Jealous. They were jealous. They looked at all the people coming to these guys for miracles and healings and the fact that they were given high regard and, and they were jealous. So they throw them in the public jail, not just any private jail, the public jail, probably to put sort of a stain on these guys like, wow, these are criminals. Maybe we shouldn't like them so much or to, to tarnish their reputation. They think they've got it covered. Verse 19, but during the night, I love this, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts. That's where they were talking about Jesus the first time, right? Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they didn't waste any time. It's not like they're like, man, I need a couple days of rest. I've been in the public jail. It says as soon as the sun started to come up, they entered the temple courts as they had been told, and they began to teach the people. About what? About who? About Jesus. As soon as they get out, they go back there. Verse 21b, when the high priest and his associates arrived... I love this part. This is kind of like those old cartoons. I don't know if you ever got in the ones where there were the two guys and they're always confused like, which way did he go, George? Which way did he go? This, this is how I imagine the, the religious leaders in this scene. It says, when the high priest and his associates arrived, this is the next morning, they called together the Sanhedrin. That's like the Senate. 
the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and they sent to the jail for the apostles. And you can imagine they're thinking, now we're going to give it to them. You know, we, we're going we're gonna to crush this once and for all. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled. Which way did he go, George? <laughs> Wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. <laughs> so you can imagine them sitting there all calm at first, getting ready to be all formal and official and let's nail these guys. And now they get this news and you can see people standing up like the confusion. At that, the captain went with his officers, brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. And I see so much in this passage. I think the main thing I see in this passage, they were facing a trial when they were in jail, right? And the angel came and set them free. But what did he set them free for? Did he set them free so they could go to their homes and play house and go to their church and play church and, and go play work and, and start to enjoy their own comforts? Why did he set them free from the trial they were facing? To go preach the good news of Jesus Christ. They were freed for a purpose, to share the word of Jesus. I think about that for us. If you trusted in Jesus, you've been set free from your sin, your shame, your past. But you have not been set free simply to enjoy a middle class life in suburban America. You have been set free to share the good news of Jesus Christ. I have been set free to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And I've been challenged lately, been reading Jim Elliott's biography. He's one of the young men that were killed by the Alka Indians as he went down their movie Into the Spear. One of the things he said as a 20-year-old that challenges me as I do it right now, um, (laughs) he said when, when he started feeling the call to go to southern America and preach the gospel, his family wanted him to stay in the States. And one of the things he said to them, he said, Mom and Dad, I have no desire to stay in the United States and grow fat leaning on a pulpit. I want to be a part of the mission God has for me. And I read that and I say, wow, oh, okay, I got a pulpit. Okay, how do I process this? Because I like the heart of it. But, and and what, where, what I'm thinking is this does not necessarily mean that every one of us is called to go to another country. But what it does mean is if you and I stay here in America, someday we're going to stand before God and have to justify why it is we stayed here. Were we faithful to the Great Commission right here in Prescott Valley, Arizona? Or did we just stay in America because it was comfortable? Did we just stay in America... For ourselves. The other thing I think about is we're not always freed from our trials, are we? You can't read this passage and say, hey, every time these guys were thrown in jail, they were let out because we know that 11 of the 12 of these apostles were eventually beheaded. That's not the lesson we take from this. The lesson is whether God lets us out or not, 
If we're in jail or out of jail, if we're in the middle of a sickness or healthy, if we're in financial trouble or wealthy, wherever we find ourselves, we are there for the purpose of speaking the words of life to the people around us. Paul himself would later say in the book of Philippians, he was put in that jail to reach the palace guard of Caesar. He was thrown in that Roman jail to reach those people. Whether you're in the middle of a trial or delivered from it, your mission is the same. My mission is the same, to speak the words of life. And I've got to share with you, when it comes to these words of life, God's been challenging me these past few months that so often, even as we talk about being missional, we talk so much about being relational. And there's this pendulum between relational and speaking the gospel. And sometimes when we talk about relationships, it's so easy to keep spending time with someone, to keep loving them, and never get to that point where you lay it out there and say, hey, Jesus died for you and rose again. Do you believe that or not? And God's been challenging me, Scott, you need to be more bold with those words of life. That's what these people, these early church was sold out to. And it's been cool. Like uh, this week on Thursday was one time when God convicted me. Like as you look at a new year, you're like, God helped me to grow this year. So this was one of my first times. I'm driving down to a hospital where a 19-year-old is having a, a tumor removed from his brain stem. He's had three bouts with cancer since the age he was seven. And I don't know where he stands with the Lord. I've met him and his mom one time, and we had some great talk for about three hours at their house, watching videos of when he was a kid and laughing and joking. But that time we never talked about Jesus. So on the way down there, God just lays it on my heart. You've got to be bold with this kid. Be loving, but be bold. And I got down to the pre-op room, and I got to tell you, all the fears started hitting me because it wasn't just him. It was nine family members. And I know where his mom stands with the Lord, but I have no idea where his uncle and his grandpa and all them stand with the Lord. He had this fear. All right, if I lay it out there too bold, are some of these people going to say, hold up there, pastor. We just wanted you down here for a nice comforting prayer. And you're getting all preachy, you know, just... I felt those fears. And you guys feel those fears when you're getting ready to share the gospel with someone, right? So I'm sitting there, and I just say, God help me, and... and uh, we talked about a couple of things. I said, you know, one of the things I believe is God writes every one of our days in a book before one of them comes to be. So until he says it's your time, you're bulletproof. Until he says it's your time, cancer, surgery, nothing's going to take you because he's written your, day, your days in his book. But I looked at him and I said, if I'm you, I know you're a man because I've seen your courage facing this, so I'm going to talk to you like a man. If I'm you going into this surgery, I'm thinking about eternity. You think about eternity, and and I asked him. I said, "Are you confident that you're right with God going into this surgery?" And and he said, "Yeah." And I said, "What makes you confident of that?" And he said, "I believe in God." Such a general answer, right? And I'm like, "Okay, that's good." But what about Jesus? You know that He came and died and and paid for your sins and rose again, so that you could be made right with His Father if you trust in Him. And he said, "Yeah, that's what I mean. I believe in that." And I hope to my core that's, that's true. But we went on and prayed, and it felt so good. Like, God helped me overcome a fear hurdle in my life, and he can help all of us overcome that fear hurdle. Me and him still have a great relationship. It's not like it blew things up. It's just God calls us to get beyond small talk, okay? If we're going to be his followers, if we're going to be his witnesses, we cannot live 80 years here in small talk. 
Small talk is good. Jokes are good. Fun talk is good. So long as they lead to a point where you and I follow God's spirit and say, all right, it's time to share the message of life with this friend, with this family member. So I want to ask you guys the question here. The first question was, where's your temple? Where's your public place where you need to take your faith? The second one is, who is it in your life that you need to get beyond small talk to the words of life with? It's easy to say, I need to take it to the world. I want to be more specific. God, show me one person over the next few weeks that I need to get more specific about sharing the words of life with. And I think sometimes we look at our own spiritual lives, maybe we look at the life of much of the church in America, and we say, hey, why do we seem so anemic sometimes? Why do we seem so shallow, so lazy, so, so worldly? And I think sometimes our first response is, hey, I just need one more sermon or one more conference or one more book. But I want to show, uh, throw out something that Paul said in Philemon 1.6. He said, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. What does he say there is necessary that we have a strong and full understanding of our salvation in Christ? Does he say it's one more conference or one more book or one more sermon? What's he say it is? That we be active in sharing our faith. Maybe the reason we're weak is we're not active in sharing our faith. Sermons are good. Books are good. Conferences are good. But if we're not active in sharing our faith, we can never expect to have a full understanding of what we have in Jesus Christ. Third one. They made a radical choice about Jesus that shaped the way they lived. They made a radical choice about who Jesus was that shaped the way they lived. Verse 27. Having brought the apostles, so they bring back from the temple after they got out, carefully so the people don't riot, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. I want you to see two things here. Number one is you can see their hatred for Jesus, right? They won't even say his name. To them it's this man, this man. But there's also kind of a backhanded compliment in here. They didn't mean to give it, but the fact that this early church had already filled this city with the good news about Jesus is kind of cool. Peter goes on. He doesn't go into a, a big justification to help them understand why they did what they did. He gets right to the point. He says, we must obey God rather than men. I think that part right there, that's, that's part of the radical choice they made when they chose Jesus. They chose right there, when what God says disagrees with what man says, I choose God. And that's a choice that you and I have to make every moment of every day. And I think more and more as we go into the future, even in this country, which has been so tolerant for a long time, but is becoming increasingly hostile and antagonistic as you'll read in this book, towards Christians, we're going to have to make that choice more and more. He says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead. He's saying, look, this is not just our idea. You know, this, is, this comes out of Judaism. Your prophets predicted this. The God of our fathers 
raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. What I love about that is even in the face of their accusers, he's saying, you guys, if you will believe this, there is forgiveness for your sins. If you will just believe in this Jesus, they're preaching the gospel to their accusers. They go on in 32. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. I want to camp on what they said at the beginning. We are witnesses of these things. These men made a radical choice about Jesus because they saw him die on a cross. They saw him buried in a tomb. And then several days later, they were eating fish with him in a locked room that he got in through a wall. That has a way of changing people. They, they couldn't just see that and not preach about Jesus. They had witnessed it all. It says, a Pharisee named Gamaliel. Now something interesting here, there's two groups in the Sanhedrin. The Sadducee were typically rich and they didn't believe in a lot of the supernatural stuff. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in resurrection. So you can see why they're sad, you see. You know, they, that one's free. You always get one in every sermon, sorry. The, the Pharisees were, were more well liked by the people. They tended to live a life of, of poverty where they could. They did burden the people with lots of extra rules, but they believed in resurrection and they believed in angels. So they were a lot closer to what these new Christians were talking about than the Sadducees were. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, we know that this is the Gamaliel that trained Saul, who would later become Paul. He was looked up to by all the people. He was honored by all the people. He stood up in the Sanhedrin and he ordered that the men, the apostles, be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. What's his point? Here he goes. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. There are different opinions about what Gamaliel says. Some people see him as a wise voice of moderation. Okay, they look at what he says and says, wow, it's good that he's bringing a little sense to these vengeful Sadducees. It's good that he's speaking some peace into this meeting, and, and that's probably true. There are others that say what he says is not even quite accurate. It's not always true that if something's of human origin, it will fail, at least in this lifetime. We know ultimately that's true, but don't we know that sometimes the wicked prosper? Job talks all about that. The wicked prosper sometimes. That's not necessarily true. Um, so some look at what he says and they actually see him as kind of a cowardly flip-flopper, not wanting to take sides on either side. Hey, let's, let's just sort of stay in this middle zone. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But it says his speech persuaded them. Bottom line is whether this was true or not, God used that to set his apostles free from death. It was not time yet 
for them to be killed. And God made sure of that. It says they called the apostles in and had them flogged. And that's just one short word that's so easy to read, read over. They were flogged at this time. This was most likely the 40 lashes minus one. 39 lashes with a whip because they had been speaking the truth about Jesus in the temple. And they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And you say, how does someone respond to 39 lashes? The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing (laughs) because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. The name of Jesus. Day after day, here they go, right back to that gospel message. In the temple courts, right back where it all started, and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. And I look at these three groups. I look at the Sadducees, and I look at Gamaliel, and I look at Peter and the apostles. And I could be wrong in my application here, but I see the Sadducees as a cold group here. They're they're vehemently opposed to Jesus. They hate him. They hate that he's shaken up the, the society that's made them wealthy and rich. They hate that he's popular, his followers are so popular, they hate them. They're, they're cold. And obviously, Peter and company are, are very hot, right? They're, they look in the face of the leaders of the land and say, we must obey God rather than you. They were hot. Why? Because they saw Jesus rise from the dead. They really believed that life in him was the ultimate fulfillment, that they were just passing through this world. And while they were here on their way to eternity, they had a mission. They believed that with all their hearts. They were hot. And I can't help but wonder, what happened to old Gamaliel? People don't really know where he ended up landing on this, but I wonder if he stayed right where he was in this passage, in this indecision. Hey, maybe it's of God. Maybe it's not. We'll see. And could it be that he represents someone who's kind of lukewarm in his doubt? He'd been in the city when Jesus died and rose again. He had most likely been there when Jesus did his miracles and now when the apostles do their miracles he had seen sign after sign after sign. Here he is in his indecision. And what I want to say here is doubt is not a destination in our lives. It may be a road marker on our journey of faith. I think if we find ourselves questioning who Jesus is, we shouldn't condemn ourselves. In Bible college, of all places, I went through two years where I didn't know if I was going to go all the way after this or I was going to throw it all away. Two years of questioning. That was a part of my road to, to faith in Jesus. So I don't think we should get condemn ourselves. True faith has room for questions, and sometimes they're not answered overnight. That's okay, but on the other hand, if you find yourself in a place of doubt about Jesus, do not be content to stay there. Don't stay there. Seek the truth with all your heart. If you have questions, pursue the answers. God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. 
And as I think about those three groups tonight, the, the cold group, the Sadducees, the hot group, Peter and company, and the, the lukewarm Gamaliel, I want to ask us, which one of those groups do we fall in as individuals? Are you hot? Are you passionate about Jesus enough to say, hey, regardless of what the people around me say, I will obey God? Because I believe that's where life is in Jesus Christ. Are you cold? You find yourself here bitter about Jesus and his people and what the Bible teaches and, and angry about it? Or do you find yourself in a place of doubt? Maybe if this lasted too long, some lukewarmness. And I think it's important as we think about which one of those three categories am I in tonight. Rather than basing it on what I say I believe or what I read in the Bible or what sermons I listen to, I think maybe a more accurate gauge of what we really believe at any given moment is how we're living at that moment, right? Because it's what we do with our time, our schedule, our money, our resources that really betrays what we believe at any given moment. So I'd encourage us, as, as we look at, am I hot, am I cold, am I lukewarm, to look not just at what, what I say and what I read, but how am I living? That will show what we believe brings ultimate fulfillment in our lives. Am I living for this world or the next? So as we close, I, I want to close our eyes and just... Ask God's Spirit to speak to us as we think about those three marks of the early church as the the world looked on. I want us to ask God's Spirit to lead us. Number one is just, God, show me where my temple is, where where my public place that, that you're calling me to take this truth to. Make it clear. Maybe you need to join a missional community. Maybe you need to start having that quiet time in a public place. Maybe you need to Take your Bible into your lunchroom at work instead of taking it to your car. I don't know what it is. But where's that temple where you want me to take my faith public? And God, who is it that you're laying on my heart right now that we've had small talk for long enough? We've loved on them for a while now, and it's time to speak the words of life to that person. God, show me who that person is. And God, last but not least, Show me the state of my heart tonight. Am I hot? Am I sold out for you no matter what? Or am I cold? Am I bitter towards you and your people and your word, the things you say and the things you call me to? Or am I camped out in sort of a lukewarm state where might be, might not be, but I've been here for years and I'm not moving anywhere. Spirit, show us and please make us a group that's, that's hot, for Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, I believe the same spirit that empowered that early church makes such a difference, is alive and well in the hearts of those who believe in your son today. May he move in mighty ways. May he bring salvation in our community, at our high schools, with our homeless people, with our veterans and our neighbors, the people we drink coffee next to. God, I pray that the early church wouldn't be some sort of nostalgic dream, but just like part of what we're still up to today. Please make that a reality. 
In Jesus' name, amen.